Super Talk Mississippi media production. Find your new ride at Kia McCombs all-new location at the corner of I-55 and Highway 98. Come find out why McComb loves Kia McComb at the corner of I-55 and Highway 98. Right on the corner, right on the price. Howdy, howdy, it's Rhino here, and I wanted to say thank you for listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. Get ready, get ready to go beyond the headlines and join a meaningful conversation with people from around the state. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. Howdy-do. How's that for an opener, Rhino? It's been a good hour and a half last night writing that, so I hope it went over. Oh, oh yeah, we're still here. How are you doing? A wonderful day, a beautiful Thursday. Again, Dave Hughes in the chair, live in the Element Wealth Studios here on Midday, Super Talk Mississippi. Uh, got a good show lined up today. Got some good stuff coming up. Uh, 12 o'clock hour, Dr. Christina Williams with Pine Grove uh, is going to be with us because, well, Mental health and and everything kind of ties together today that we've got to talk about in, in one way or the other. Uh, next hour we've got uh, Leslie Lee with the Jimmy Rogers Festival that that ties together because whoo festival music love it Jimmy Rogers Festival is a great thing uh, that they're doing and coming up in just a few minutes we have an author who's going to be speaking in about an hour and a half or so here in town uh, author of the book Criminal Injustice. Uh, is going to be joining us. I don't know if you've seen one of the big stories going on, but there was a guy that, uh, well, he found out after he did the thing around that you tend to do sometimes when you uh, are having a bad day uh, up in New York on the subway. If you haven't heard about this story, it was a guy who was a Michael Jackson impersonator. We're immediately off into fun territory there. Uh was on the subway. He was he was trying to push people onto the tracks. He was screaming at people. He was yelling at people. Well, a former Marine was on the train and said, calm down. And he said, make me. Oh, uh, yeah, okay. Once again, found out. The Marine uh, got him in a chokehold. A couple of other people got up. It took several people to restrain this guy. Well, in the midst of the struggle and everything else, he he died. Bad thing. But I'm looking at a post that was put out, a tweet that was put out, Rhino, uh, showing a video of him doing his Michael Jackson impersonation in the middle of the train saying, Jordan Neely loved to dance and perform. Oh, he also loved breaking the law. He had been arrested 44 times for harassment and assault. 44 times. And we're surprised this was the result? And it's a tragedy? I don't think so. It is, but not the way anybody's thinking. Am I looking at this wrong, Rhino? And by the way, good morning, Rhino. Sorry, I I walked in the door fired up about this one. Sorry. No, I would say there is a portion of the population that would get really offended to hear your take on it. But I'm sure. It's the realest take. 
I, I can't think of any other way to look at the 44 times you're arrested for the same thing. And then it ultimately ends up with a, a bad result. Nobody wanted this result out of this. Even the people involved, they were just trying to calm him down and keep him from hurting somebody else. And we wound up here. Nobody wanted to wind up here. Not saying that. Not at all. But you can't express surprise and sympathy for someone who has been arrested 44 times for this kind of behavior. When when this happens on the 45th time you've tried to assault someone, you've experienced a lot of luck. I, I, I know that's a horrible way to put it, but it's the truth. You've experienced a lot of luck. If it's your 45th time assaulting and harassing someone on the subway in New York before somebody jumps on you. But this does speak to a problem, and that's why Dr. Williams is uh, on in the noontime hour, because I want to talk to her. Uh, we And I do this very regularly, as you know, Rhino. We don't talk enough about mental health. It is a problem here in Mississippi. Nobody wants to talk about it because it's an uncomfortable subject, and it's not an easy subject to fix. We have defaulted into a state, mentally and emotionally, to where even if we have a complex problem, we want to boil it down to the simplest possible common denominator and pretend that's the problem that we need to fix. We have a problem with mental health, period. There's no way around it. It doesn't help that it's trendy to label oneself with diagnoses of mental health problems. Well, the sad thing is uh, you could have stopped – you could have put a period after the word oneself in that sentence. It's trendy to label oneself on all sides. It it, it sees no political divisions, people on both sides – Spend all day labeling themselves and getting upset if somebody else doesn't like it. We have a very serious mental health problem. And in Mississippi, we'll talk to Dr. Williams coming up in the noontime hour. And Pine Grove is part of the solution, not part of the problem. They are recognized as one of the best mental health organizations in the country. Having said that, even with that... Mississippi is near the bottom on this topic. We saw an ugly result that we're going to see people try to weaponize and turn into a reason for everybody to riot and get upset now. This boiled down to a mental health problem in New York. We have the same problems, if not worse, here. And I really don't want to see us go down this road. So we need to talk about it. We need to figure it out. And we need to address it head on like adults instead of trying to boil it down to a neat, packageable, you know, quote, a little slogan. Uh, No, that's not working. You know how I know? Look around. Yeah, it's not a candy-coated mini capsule. It's a horse pill and it's a bitter pill. But it's one that... Unless it is dealt with and serious conversations are had, you're going to see major metropolitan areas actually wind up looking like the future that was predicted back in the last great crime wave of the 80s. 
Yeah, well, San Francisco's headed in that direction right now. All the businesses are leaving. Uh, it's it's being overrun by criminals and uh, also by homeless people and by drug addicts and everybody else. Uh, it's not a good situation there, and that could be a harbinger of things to come. But that does bring up the other point. Uh, and again, we have uh, coming up in just a moment, right after the break that we're about to take in a second, uh, Talking about uh, Raphael, and I, I got to ask him how he pronounces his last name. I think it's Raphael Mangual. That, that's that's that is totally a guess on my part, but I'm going to get him to correct me hopefully on that. Uh, he's written a book called Criminal Injustice. He's speaking today at a Mississippi Center for Public Policy event. Uh, He's got some thoughts on anti-police policies, beliefs, sentencing guidelines that lets people, oh, I'm just going to pull an example, a random hypothetical out of the air, get arrested 44 times for the same thing and still be out there doing it again. There are issues here. I told you, everything ties together today. We have a nice, neat package today. Uh, So we're going to get his thoughts on this, and I, I think... You will enjoy this conversation coming up in just a moment. I'm, I'm looking forward to talking to him uh, because this is a problem that needs to be addressed as well. We've kind of, yeah, notice we had that big upswell, defund the police, anti-police. Notice the conversation died down considerably about that. About a year after everybody rushed forward Oh, we got to defund the police. Then they defunded the police, and then their their garage got broken into, and they realized, wait, wait, this is a bad idea. And now they're refunding the police, except they're not using that as a slogan. There's a reason for that, but we're still not back to where we should be. We weren't where we should be before any of that happened, which is kind of part of the point. But we'll we'll be talking to Raphael here in just a moment and get his take on that. Uh, Do you you have a coronation party planned for the weekend, by the way, Ryan? (laughs) I was actually considering watching it just to see all the pomp and circumstance, and then I saw the time, and I was like, nope. If it's not a soccer match or a Formula One race in some exotic locale, I'm I'm not tuning in to watch some dude sit on a chair with a magic rock in it from Scotland. It's uh, 5 a.m. Saturday morning. If I'm getting up at 5 a.m. on a Saturday, that tells me the fish are biting because I can't think of any other reason I would get up at 5 o'clock on a Saturday morning, especially to go watch something that we fought a war 250 years ago to not have to care about. So, yeah. Thomas says mental health is the excuse. It's not a mental health issue. Thomas, ironically enough, that's crazy talk. But we'll deal with that in just a bit. Right now, we're getting ready for Rafael Mangual. He's up next here on Middays, live in the Element Well Studios. Keep it here. Gerard Gibbert. Let's do this. On Super Talk Mississippi. Let's go. 
Tech Super Talk, Mississippi Middays in the Element Wealth Studios. Dave Hughes here. And joining us in the studio, and I have been informed that I did not massacre his last name. So I'm very happy to hear that, but I'm going to try to do it even better this time. Uh, we've got author Raphael Mongual. Perfect. Yes! I'm going home, Rhino. I'm done. That's my accomplishment for the day. Uh, Raphael, you're here with the uh, uh, to speak at a Mississippi Center for Public Policy event uh, today, and you're an author of a book. And I, number one, I love the name because it doesn't come across spoken word. You have to see it with the parentheses around yes. the in yes. for criminal injustice. Uh, tell us a little bit. Number one, first, tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, uh, I'm born and raised in New York City, Brooklyn, um, and that's really relevant to the work I do today because, you know, New York was not always the the kind of big, safe city that it, you know, became in the the early aughts and mid-2000s. You know, it still is by and large today, although we've seen a deterioration. You know, but when I was going into kindergarten, we had 2,262 murders that year. Um, We had 292 murders in 2017. So, you know... I have lived my life mostly in a city that completely transformed itself and I think, you know, in my opinion, constitutes the single biggest achievement in urban American history. Um, And, you know, watching that was, I think, really influential in terms of developing my own appreciation for the importance of public safety and what it can do to transform an economy. I mean – New York City, particularly the outer boroughs, the you know Brooklyn, the Bronx, Queens, transformed in ways that it is now unrecognizable compared to you know the pictures. I mean, I don't know how old your sort of median listener is, but there was this interesting moment during the 1977 World Series where Howard Cosell is announcing one of the games. And, you know, as, as, as they do, the camera zooms out from Yankee Stadium and kind of gives, you know, a little picture of the landscape. And all you saw were these fires burning all over the Bronx. And he has this really famous line where he says, ladies and gentlemen, the Bronx is burning. Uh, and it becomes this sort of iconic moment in New York's history where, you know, it was this moment of embarrassment where the city was, you know, just looked like a hellscape, literally, you know, fire and brimstone. And, um, you know, it was not weird to have whole city blocks where maybe there was one standing structure and all of that changed in seemingly an instant and it was because we got one really important thing right and that was public safety well and you know number one uh, I, I think we also fall into the trap talking about the Bronx is burning, but that was very obvious. It was on TV. But we fall into the trap of identifying the worst possible aspects of whatever we're considering or talking about and pretending that's the entirety of it. New York still has problems. Sure. They still have a lot of issues. Everybody has a lot of issues. Yeah. But it's more to it than that. And that stat you gave me about the, the, the murders, that that's incredible. Yeah. How much has dropped. But that's that leads into what you were saying. The one thing that you got right in New York that happened there that turned everything around economically, societally, culturally, what was it? It was public safety. I mean, we were able to figure out a way to experiment with both policing and criminal justice policy. Um, And those experiments basically prioritized putting resources in the highest crime enclaves of New York City and signaling to the public in those places that, hey, 
someone's in charge here. We're going to take this seriously. We're going to get things under control. We are not going to suffer repeat offenders to the degree that we have been throughout the 1970s and 80s. And we're going to start to take these punks off the street for really long periods of time. And what that did, I think much to the surprise of people even making these policy choices, was it gave these communities room to breathe, room to grow. And as crime started to come down, it made those places more attractive to economic investment, to business development, to real estate development. You know, New York City became a city was a city where parents were afraid to send their kids to NYU or Columbia, you know, because, hey, well, you know, are they going are they going to ride the subway? Are they going to get mugged in the street to a place where it's like, OK, no, I'll happily send my kid there. And then, you know, it sort of transformed into a city where when you graduated from NYU or Columbia, it wasn't, OK, I'm going to move to L.A. or, you know, Chicago or some other part of the country. It was like, no, I'm actually going to stay here. And, you know, that, again, just, you know, it snowballed. And this, you know, sort of positive uh, cycle of reinforcement just kind of took off. And, you know, New York became just the sort of place where you could, as I did when I was in college, you know, leave a bar at 3 a.m., walk 20 blocks with a $100 bill taped to your forehead and be fine. Um, and that that just you know um, was 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 I think unpredicted, and the benefits were just well beyond what anyone expected. And and that's one of the reasons why I think you're seeing the kind of pushback against the direction that the city is moving in now. Because as I mentioned, we got down to 292 homicides in 2017, but we're now approaching the 500 mark again. Um, you know, after seeing a nearly 50 percent increase in homicides in 2020, and then another increase in 2021. And I think that's something that lots of cities around the country are dealing with. Is you know. I think in a lot of ways, the United States is a victim of its own success because the New York formula was kind of tried in the rest of the country and you know you saw crime declines kind of you know uh, uh, happen in, in big cities across the nation. But as crime goes down, I think you start to see a level of in, uh, of, of you know uncomfortableness with with the incongruity between the, a tough system and safe streets. And so as that level of discomfort grows. You know, people start to push back on the kind of robust systems that provided that initial level of safety to begin with. And you start to roll those things back through various reform efforts. And that rollback can then make jurisdictions increasingly more vulnerable to exactly the kind of crimes. And so, you know, at the beginning of my book, I, I quote this crime historian, Eric Monkinen, who um, – you know, said back in the 1960s that the crime would would follow a sort of cyclical pattern where you would have really low levels of crime, uh, which meant that you know public safety wasn't really taken seriously, and that lack of seriousness would create the conditions for crime to rise. As crime rose and eventually got out of control, people would have a kind of draconian response to it, and that those uh, responses would then cause crime to go down and then set the stage for the next cycle to repeat itself. And so I think that's kind of where we are um, historically. Speaking, you know, in the 1950s and 60s, crime wasn't, you know, a huge problem at the early outset. You know, the systems weren't really in place. In the mid 1960s, it starts to tick up as a result, gets out of control in the 70s and 80s and 90s. We say, oh my goodness, we, we really have to do something about this. And, you know, uh, there's these huge investments in policing and criminal justice over the course of the, uh, you know, late 80s, early 1990s. That then leads things to get brought under control. And then the reform movement, you know, uh, kind of refound its voice and, um, you know, we're doing it all over again. So my hope is that, you know, by, by writing about these issues and, you know, um, highlighting that history, 
the pendulum won't swing as far past the point of equilibrium this time around as it did the last time. So that, you know, as history kind of repeats itself, we we learn faster and um, don't make as big a mistake. Well, I'm sure you heard me talking in the segment before you came in here about the incident on the subway in New York where the guy got choked. Forty-four times he had been arrested. That's right. And released again. I, you had 44 chances to where this wouldn't have had to happen. Yeah. Uh, but but we didn't do that. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think, you know, what we often see in terms of, you know, crime and especially in urban enclaves is that, you know, there is an incongruity between reality and the narrative. And the narrative is that we sort of systematically deny second chances in this country. In fact, last month was second chance month in the United States. Um, but, you know, the reality is that people are given plenty of chances and, One question that I think we have to be more comfortable asking ourselves as a society is, are we actually helping offenders who we continue to release out into the public? And are we actually helping the communities that they're going to spend their time in? I mean, I don't think, at least with hindsight, that anyone can look at what happened on the subway and say, okay, this person who's been arrested 44 times is clearly mentally ill in a very serious way and obviously can't function within society. Was he really better off where he was roaming the subways? Asking for food, having episodes, you know, uh, getting himself into situations in which, you know, he lost control and eventually created enough fear for someone to intervene in that kind of violent way. I mean, that's not the world I want to live in. You know, we have been sort of duped as a society into believing that compassion requires um, this kind of leniency. Um, And and you the only way that that argument kind of you know, uh, gains popular purchase is by ignoring the potential downside risks that are associated with that project and not just the risk to the broader community, which is often how we frame this, and those are important, but also the risks to the individuals themselves. Um, you know, a lot of times these offenders will also become victims by virtue of the circumstances in which they live and how they carry themselves. That's a perfect example what happened here. But I think that part of, and we've gotten caught up in this again. We do. It's just like everything else. It's cyclical. Uh, we have gotten caught up in this this compassionate kabuki theater to where we have now twisted things around to where somebody thinks it's actually a decent argument to look you in the face and go, you don't understand. We should have given him a 45th chance. Right. Right. And that makes sense to some people. Yeah. What do they say about the definition of insanity? Right. Same thing over and over and over and over at least 45 times in this particular case, which is part of the problem. Can you hang on through the break? I sure can. Fantastic. We're talking to Raphael Mongual. Perfect. Okay, good. <laughs> I, I'm trying to keep my record off, Rhino. Uh, author of Criminal Injustice, speaking at a Mississippi Center for Public Policy event um, in about an hour, yeah. actually. we got to get you out of here pretty quick because of traffic, if nothing else, so you can get there. I'm sure it's nothing close to New York traffic, so I'll be all right. Well, and you got Douglas driving. That's so, right. Yeah, just, just <laughs> buckle the seatbelt. Yeah, just to make sure he stays on the left side of the road. Huh? Off the left side that's of the road. A, that, that's a lot of... <laughs> Middays with Gerard Gibbert. It is on. On Super Talk Mississippi. We have a very welcoming stance here on Middays, live in the Element Well Studios. You know, I've heard so many people do this song, and I'm sorry, that's Frank's song, Everybody Needs to Leave It Alone. Indeed. It's a great song, but 
I'm a big Rat Pack fan to begin with. Oh, yeah, so, yeah. yeah. Frank, leave Frank alone. That, that's Frank's. That will be his for all eternity. Welcome back. We've got in studio with us now Raphael Mangual. Uh, author, I'm not even commenting on it anymore. I think I've got it now. <laughs> author of Criminal Injustice, and we're we're talking about, and I, we've got a text on the ceasefire text line from uh, Rick down in Gulfport, who says there's areas in East Paris where the French police don't go. It was much the same when I lived there 50 years ago. New Orleans, you know about. New York seems safer than either of those now. It is, but we have a tendency to focus on the 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 sensational stories and the big things and and try to make that in our mind be the entire situation. And it's not the case in New York. No, it's not. And, you know, one of the things that is really important to do, and it's a mistake that we often make, and even I'm guilty of it sometimes, is when we talk about crime and public safety, we talk about it in aggregate terms. We talk about crime in New York, crime in Louisiana, crime in New Orleans, crime in Philadelphia. When the reality is, is that you know, we don't experience crime or really anything else in the aggregate, right? I mean, you know, how safe you are is highly dependent on specifically where you are and what time it is. Um, and, and, and so it's actually much more, um, enlightening to look at crime statistics, not at the city level and not even really at the neighborhood level, but really at the street level. If you spend any time in any major city, you know that within the scope of a couple of blocks, the public safety picture can change radically, right? There are parts of every city where you would be well advised not to go at all, and the majority of the city is going to be safe. And so, you know, the Manhattan Institute um, uh, actually did an interesting study on crime concentration in New York City uh, that we published in 2021 that looked at um, the level of concentration at the street segment level. So a street segment, if you're just imagining a four-sided city block, would be corner-to-corner both sidewalks is one street segment. New York City has 82,000 of those approximately. About 3.5% of the street segments see 50% of all the violent crime. About 5% of the street segments see 50% of all the crime. And about 1% of the street segments see 25% of the crime, whereas 40% of the street segments don't see any crime at all in a given year. And so, you know, one of the things that we have to be really careful about when we talk about crime at the city level is, you know, the fact that we are often um, kind of go- rolling over the fact that crime is a very hyper-concentrated phenomenon geographically. There only affects a very, very small slice of the country. Um, and it's also very hyper-concentrated demographically. So again, you know, drawing on my, my, my knowledge in New York City, every single year for which we have data, a minimum of 95% of all shooting victims in our city are either black or Hispanic. Almost all of them are males. Now, I can assure you that black and Hispanic males don't constitute anywhere close to 95% of our population. In 2021, it was 97% of shooting victims. So, you know, we have to be very, very careful about how we talk about crime. There is no American crime problem. There is no, you know, Mississippi crime problem. There is no Jackson crime problem. There is a crime problem in specific places within jurisdictions at specific times. And that's, I think, a, a much more elevated way of approaching the problem that's going to be, um, you know, much more enlightening as to the, the discussion about what solutions are going to work because solutions have to be narrowly tailored to the scope of the problem. And one of the things that I don't think Americans quite fully appreciate is just that particular phenomenon. I mean, you know, across the country, about 50% of homicides will occur in about 2% of U.S. counties and more than half of U.S. counties are not going to see any homicides uh, in a given year. And within those counties, you know, the, the crime problem is even more concentrated still. We have to find a solution for this. And I think perception plays a part in that definitely because we have lost sight of the ability to take uh, kind of kind of a, a, a gut 
reaction to things, a gut knowledge, uh, and apply it to the overall problem. We want to talk in these big sweeping terms, as you said, but I'm sorry, there are some areas of wherever you're at, whatever county you're at in Mississippi, whatever city you're in, there's some part of it you wouldn't let your wife walk down the sidewalk by themselves. There's others you wouldn't have a problem, period. That's just the way it works. But we don't want to talk about that in that fashion because, well, it's insensitive. It's insensitive and it's, you know, it's nuanced and nuance, of course, you know, it's hard. It, it's hard. It, it makes the conversation more difficult to have. I mean, I think one of the main reasons there's resistance um, to, you know, kind of acknowledging this reality of crime concentration, both geographic and demographic, is that a lot of the crime debate is framed around the idea that we should be most concerned with the racial disparities in our criminal justice enforcement statistics. You know, we are told that, you know, the elevated rate at which certain communities are arrested, um, involved in stops and frisks, are incarcerated, that this is prima facie evidence of discrimination on the part of the system, right? Systemic racism, systemic, dis- you know, uh, discrimination. These disparities, uh, you know, are the problems that the criminal justice reform movement of today are really kind of geared toward addressing. And, you know, one of the things that I, I don't think that really grapples with is this crime concentration phenomenon, because if you agree that the resources that we um, invest to address crime, that those resources should be concentrated where the problem is most acute, well, then you have to accept that disparities are going to arise from that, right? Again, if you're talking about New York City, where 97% of shooting victims two years ago were black or Hispanic males, would it be fair to deploy as many resources to very low crime, you know, white communities uh, than you do to very high crime minority communities. And, you know, I'm old. I'm not I'm still a young man, but I'm old enough to remember where one of the sort of most, uh, um, you know, intense critiques of policing as an institution was that it wasn't responsive enough to crime in minority communities. I mean, I don't know how many uh, uh, old school hip hop fans are listening, but there's a group called Public Enemy. And one of their most famous songs in uh, I think it was the late 80s um, uh, was 911 is a joke. And and the idea was that, you know, the police just would take their time responding to crime and, and you know, low income minority communities. And this kind of reflected uh, the sort of subtle racism of that institution back then. But now we live in a very different world. In which resources are diverted to the places that need the most, and now we're told that the outgrowth of that phenomenon is evidence of racism still, and so you, it's kind of you know uh, you, you can't win and can only lose. Um, you know, but but the other thing that the systemic racism critique, which is very very powerful for people, that it gets wrong is that it's only looking at enforcement statistics as if that's the only output of the criminal justice system. But when the criminal justice system works, right, when police do their job well, when we incarcerate the right people, crime goes down. And what they never look at is who enjoys the benefits that are associated with those crime declines. And it turns out that those disparities are just as stark and just as persistent. And so I, I ask people often this rhetorical question, why on earth would a system allegedly designed and operated for the specific oppression of low-income minority communities so disproportionately benefit those communities when the system achieves its state and ends? Ask any police chief in the country, what is it that you want to achieve? How do you define success? They say, well, I want to control crime. I want to suppress crime. Ask any law and order prosecutor the same thing. What, you know, what motivates you to do that? Well, I want to, you know, I want to provide public safety. Same thing with corrections officials. Well, at this point in the game, we know who suffers the most from the crime problem, which means we know who's going to benefit the most from that problem's reduction. And yet no one really addresses that incongruity. 
Well, and uh, they probably won't, let's be honest, yeah. unless their hand is forced. That's the way it works. And that's everybody. This is across the board. Sure. Uh, and this is a problem that's not going to go away. It has to be addressed. But at the same time, this is something that I have said many times. Uh, it's, it's something I keep falling back on because I have identified this as one of our root problems, and I think it definitely applies to this area. We have gotten so process-oriented and focused instead of result-oriented and oriented and focused. We no longer set a goal, that's what we want to achieve, and then do what we have to do to get there. No. Goal is almost secondary because we want to make sure we do this process this way. I don't care. Make crime go down. Let's 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 start with that instead of focusing on making sure we do things the right way, and then hopefully, hopefully, things will get better. We've got to quit focusing on the process and start focusing on getting some results. Well, if you reorient the inquiry around results, it instills a sense of accountability that a lot of people are just uncomfortable with because now they have something to answer for. And that was actually the really great innovation um, of of crime control efforts in New York City in, in the early 1990s was, you know, Bill Bratton came into New York City and, and actually said, we are going to get crime under control, which immediately put himself behind the eight ball because what happens if it doesn't happen? Oh, and by the way, crime has been going up since the late 1960s in that city, and no one's been able to get it under control. And he actually said, no, this is going to be the standard against which I will be measured. And that really put him out on a limb. And he showed that actually if you motivate people around that result, that you can actually really motivate them uh, in important ways and, and produce benefits that were just, again, incredible. Personal accountability and working towards a good result to benefit the people that need it the most. This is crazy talk, Rabbi. You know, I, I, I don't even know what to do with you at this point. Uh, you make way too much sense to be floating around loose. Luckily, we've, we've got Douglas out there. He's a yeah, good man and yeah. good man out there. And Indeed. obviously, you are as well. You're speaking today uh, again in about 40 minutes, so we got to okay. get you out of here, or I would keep you around for another hour. Uh, Rafael Mongual, author of Criminal Injustice. I have enjoyed talking to you. And likewise, next time you're in this area, swing back by. I will. Fantastic. We will continue on Middays live in the Element Wealth Studios right after this. Are we going to do this? Middays with Gerard Gibbert. On Super Talk Mississippi. Apologies to everyone that would have thoroughly enjoyed calling my phone number repeatedly if they had known I hadn't turned my ringer off yet. I've now turned it off, so missed your chance. It's a missed opportunity on a Thursday. Welcome back, Middays, live in the Element Well Studios. You know, we're talking about crime. Sometimes crime isn't what you think it is, and I've got a story that exemplifies that perfectly. What you got? Well, in Florida, 
<clears throat> the the Putnam County Sheriff's Office, and they shared this on their Facebook page, so it's coming straight from the source. Uh, they had uh, several calls that, that there was fighting going on in a neighborhood out in the yard. So, of course, they respond. They roll out. They get there. Uh, it was two goats. They were fighting. They were locking horns. They were braying or buying. I guess braying would be the correct term. Just just going at each other. And this was a wide-ranging goat fight. They were fighting all over the neighborhood. Everybody's yard got a little piece of the action before it was over with. Uh, they uh, then grabbed the goats and took them to jail. <laughs> you can't make this up. Uh, and then they contacted the owner. The two goats had escaped from uh, a local, uh, and uh, they contacted the owner and got him to come bail the goats out. Crime comes at different levels and different flavors, doesn't it? That's something else that we tend to lose sight of. Uh, you, you, And I, I think Raphael had exactly the right word that he used when he said nuanced. You have to have a nuanced approach to all of this. And we've gotten away from that, Rhino. We, we, I don't know that we have generally, culturally, in society, I don't know that we have the capacity to be nuanced right now, do we? It requires a longer attention span than it seems the vast majority of the population is willing to hold on to. Yes, and I think that uh, in large part is the fault of the media. And yes, there is a certain aspect of that that comes from the spin and the, 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 the twisting and the principles of persuasion being put into play. But also, the, I, I think it all started with the 24-hour news cycle and desperately having to find something to fill that time all day, every day, nonstop. So you keep manufacturing things and you keep building things up to be bigger than they are so that you can justify to your audience that what you're talking about is something they should be focused on. Uh, CNN was, of course, the first one to get into that, and they had some ridiculous stuff that they did on slow news days. But slow news day, you still got to have something to fill the time 24 hours a day. So that's gotten people used to shifting mental gears just like that. I think you could argue that's part of it, and another part of it is the convenience with which we entertain ourselves when we're not trying to educate ourselves. Yes. Well, I think there's a lot more entertainment than education going right. on in the self-world right now, uh, because entertainment's easy. Entertainment's fun. Entertainment is low buy-in. All you have to do is show up, and somebody else does all the work. Educating yourself, putting thought into things, critical thinking skills, well, those take effort. Those, you, you have to try to do that. To be entertained, you can be sitting on a park bench and a funny-looking squirrel walks by with a funny walk, and you're entertained. You did nothing for that. You were just in the right place at the right time. Unfortunately, anything of worth takes work. I'm going to say that again. Anything of worth takes work. It doesn't just happen. You don't wake up and all of a sudden, bam, everything is fine. It's all simple and easy and boiled down to this one sound bite, and that's all I have to focus. No, it's never that way. So I think, Raphael, the word nuanced was absolutely spot on perfect when he used that. We need to start applying nuance to a lot of different things in society. 
or we're not going to see the improvement everybody says they want, and really most people do want it. People want things to get better. I would love dearly if the worst thing that we had to talk about, you and I could sit here and be, it's National, International Star Wars Day. I'm just now mentioning it an hour in because we have other things we have to talk about that are substantive. Huge Star Wars fan. But comparatively, does that matter in the grand scheme of things? No, it doesn't. That, to me, is part of the problem as well. We we have conflated things to the point to where we have forgotten that personal is not the same as important. What we personally like, well, that doesn't make it important. Maybe important to you, but as an objective measure, it's not important, period. No. We need to get those things knocked out so we can go back to goofing around about Star Wars Day and everything else with a free conscience. Just my thought. We wandered way off into the deep, deep waters in the first hour today, didn't we? That's why I was playing YMCA to finish us off. I, I think that was an excellent choice. It's a, it's a palate cleanser, if you will, because when we come back after Fox News and Super Talk Mississippi News, Leslie Lee will be joining us. The Jimmy Rogers Festival. It's time. So we'll cleanse the palate a little further and talk about something nice and fun when we come back on Middays live in the Element Wealth Studios on Super Talk Mississippi. And now, another hour of the talk that keeps Mississippi talking. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Begin your transition now. Now on Super Talk Mississippi. Welcome back. Super Talk Mississippi, hour number two of Middays, live in the Element Wealth Studios. Dave Hughes here, and joining us now on the telephone, we have the executive director of, and correct me if I'm wrong, Leslie, I believe it is the longest-running music festival in America, the Jimmy Rogers Festival. We have Leslie Lee on the phone. How are you today? Hey, that is correct. I'm great. Thanks for having me. And I don't think a lot of people realize that that Meridian is, is home to... Uh, the longest running meet, what, 70 years? Is this the 70th? 70 years. That's correct. It was kicked off 70 years ago in 1953 with um, Hank Snow and Ernest Tubbs. And uh, had a huge crowd because we, we've kind of uh, readjusted our idea of a large crowd over the years as these things right. have grown in popularity. But it was like, what, 50,000, 60,000 that showed up back 50, in 53? 50,000 in downtown Meridian. They came and they camped out for about a week here. And any country legend you can name has played the festival. Well, all I know for sure is this year is going to be a success, and I know that for one reason. You got Paul Thorne showing up. So we're going. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's covered now. Everything else is just lanyap at this point. Uh, That's right. Now, now tell us about this. It's a week-long festival, right? Yeah, it's actually nine days. We start uh, this Saturday, May 6th, and we're running until next Sunday, May 14th. And we have something for everyone every day of the week. 
Now, and now, tell us some of the things that are going on. Of course, we, we've got some fantastic musical guests that are happening, and we'll get to those in a second. But what else happens during the Jimmy Rogers Festival every year? Well, this Saturday, we have a great crawfish cook-off, a big boil. Um, we expect last year we had about 3,500 people downtown for it that showed up. And this year, we've actually doubled the teams and um, bringing in about 8,000, 8,500 pounds of crawfish. So <laughs> you don't want to miss that. Wow. And, that, uh, and that... that it, you know, that should last maybe an hour. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> we'll see. Um, and then, but, you know, we've got music with all that, too. Tyler Farr is going to be headlining that night starting around 7, so you don't want to miss it. They're fantastic. Now, we, we were talking about uh, the, the music. You've got some fantastic acts. I name-dropped Paul Thorne because, come on, it's Paul Thorne. you get you right. got to love him. You're required almost by law to love Paul Thorne. Uh, but you've got some other great names showing up, too, right? We do. Uh, so next Friday, May 12th, uh, we've got Kingfish. You know, he was just voted by Garden Gun Magazine as one of the top ten guitar players. And if you've never seen him, Mississippi boy, uh, this is it. This is the place to see him. It's going to be amazing. So we've got Kingfish, uh, John Tavius Willis, who is also another blues prodigy on the rise. Um, we've got Paul Cawthon, chart-topping country. We've got just tons of names, a great lineup. We've even got Gospel Brunch on Sunday the 14th, a New Orleans-style gospel brunch, Grammy Award-winning winning choir, um, Joyful and the Spirit of New Orleans will be here. So we've just got something, like I said, every day of the week. You can go to jimmyrogers.com, and that's J-I-M-M-I-E, rogers.com, and you can look at the full lineup and get the tickets. Now, Jimmy, he's considered the father of country music. Uh, do you think that's why this caught hold and became so popular and has stayed so popular? Or what do you think the secret is? Well, you know, it's such a rich history. I mean, going back 70 years with two country legends themselves that started this. And it was really an honor for these artists to come and play this. You know, until the music business really changed in the early 90s, these guys, these country music legends, they would come here and just play for free, just just to be on the stage for it. So the history of it is very, very neat. And, um, you know, it, it was something different. It lasted a week long. And so we've brought back that week-long formula where we have everything from a music history seminar evening. Um, we've got some great authors and speakers and historians coming in to speak on that, um, you know, to the talent competition. Now, this is a fun fact. In 1953, Elvis... He entered the talent competition. Really? He did not win. He I, came that was in my, third place. He came in third? <laughs> he came in third. But don't worry. He came back to headline the festival in 1955. Well, that, that, what happened to first and second place? Where did they go? <laughs> right? I don't know. But uh, they were with Elvis, so he's the only one that gets the credit on that one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, 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 sometimes finishing third is right, right where you want to be, I think, in right. this particular case. That's, that's interesting. That's something that's not really uh, a fact you would expect to hear. You would think, you know, 53, Elvis, oh, yeah, he's going to blow the roof off the dump. No, yeah. apparently not. <laughs> uh, but that does speak to something else. Uh, you've got the, the talent competition still going. I really think you, you should have, like, a feature where every year you follow up because of Elvis on what happens to the third-place finisher every year, how their career <laughs> right. progresses, because we well, have a history we've had there. Some, 
We've had some pretty big names from it. You know, Randy House, um, he he won, or he didn't win. He entered one year and didn't win. And look where he's charting Nashville tops now. So um, so it's a lot of talent. And so, you know, that's but that's still going on 70 years later. Um, we've had a lot of entries for it. We've got it down to the top five, and then they're going to compete Wednesday night for it. Fantastic. Now, uh, th- this is uh, kind of spread around. It's not just in one big building in one big area, right? Right. We kind of showcase off our downtown. So we have a lot of different events um, in different locations, everywhere from the Historic Temple Theater. Uh, we are going to use the MAX, the Mississippi Arts and Entertainment Experience, as our main stage for Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. Um, Marty Stewart has been so gracious over in Philadelphia to loan his theater to us for the Paul Thorne show on Thursday. So we're kind of spotlighting this area. See, even Marty knows how important it is to have Paul Thorne there. I'm, I'm just saying. <laughs> That's right. It didn't come out of anywhere. It's Paul Thorne. Uh, now, how how expensive is this? Do I need to take out a second mortgage to come to this? Absolutely not. Um, so half of the week is actually free. So, um, you know, we're, we're, we try to keep it accessible to all music lovers, and this is just such a great thing for our community. So a lot of events are free now. The Paul Thorne, the Kingfish, Paul Cawthon tickets, those are minimal. You need to go purchase the tickets. Obviously, but uh, everything else, there's a lot of things you can just wander around and do. And you can also, from what I understand, uh, buy, buy a VIP ticket, a VIP experience that lets you into just about everything, right? That is correct. VIP will get you into all of the shows. Um, it will also give you free refreshments, free food, clean potties, which is important during a festival. <laughs> so, and that's only two hundred dollars, and that gets you into every show we have and for for nine days. Exactly. Okay, so when you divide two hundred by nine, that's not that much. But I will say this, um, and, and that uh, the VIP does include entrance into the Paul Thorne concert, right? Exactly, it does. It's everything. But I will say this: as someone who has been to a lot of festivals, uh-huh. uh, you really should lead with the clean restrooms because that's the big <laughs> one. That's the selling point. That is, isn't it? Yep. So it, it's it's worth it. Two hundred dollars will get you that. Two hundred bucks, and you've got a clean restroom at the festival for nine days. Yeah, okay, I'm in. I'm in. I'm buying immediately at that point. Uh, Now, of course, I know how this works. Uh, It goes through next Sunday. So that following day, that Monday, work starts on next year's edition, right? Exactly. And we've got a great lineup already getting together for next year. So, um, you know, this is, like I said, 70 years history, the legacy of Jimmy Rogers. It's, It's so so big for Mississippi. Um, it's a real honor to host here in Meridian. Do you see people show up for this every year and they, they uh, show up? I know how this works. They show up. They, they don't really know what's going on. They just show up because something's happening. And then they start finding out who Jimmy Rogers was because I feel like a lot of folks wouldn't even recognize the name at this point, amazingly enough. Um, you know, yeah, it does happen. Uh, and, and then they find out, you know, hey, this guy, you know, he was kind of pigeonholed into the category of father of country music. I think Jimmy would kind of giggle at that today. Um, he's been honored and is in almost every genre Hall of Fame except Calypso music. We kind of joke. But um, he's, you know, he was the first inductee into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. He's in the Country Music Hall of Fame, first inductee for that. Gospel Hall of Fame, Blues Hall of Fame, Folk Music, uh, National Songwriters Hall of Fame. So his he 
his legacy is still known to this day, but a lot of people don't know where all the references, you know, where they came from, where they originated. So people learn. That's why we have the Music History Night. Uh, they learn a lot. But we have people coming from all over the world for this. I've been working with big groups out of Texas, getting them tickets. And um, so we're excited for a big festival. Uh, roughly, what, what do you think the attendance is going to be over the nine days? Well, I'll tell you, for over the nine days... Um, probably, you know, 15,000 or so. But I'll tell you, since we are doing the big shows at the max this year, we are limited capacity at only 1,500 per night. So get your tickets now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you, you get them before they're gone, because once they're gone, that's it. The fire marshal will come lock the door if he has to. That's right. And Paul Cobbin, being in the beautiful Ellis Theater, um, they only capacity is only 500 there so we have a little bit over 50 tickets left for that so make sure you get them for that so you're close to a sellout on that one already that's right so to find out more all they have to do is go to the website right correct jimmyrogers.com and it's jimmy with an ie j-i-m-m-i-e rogers that's r-o-d-g-e-r-s because i've seen without the d before yeah. uh, <laughs> dot com uh, just That's go right. there. You'll find all the information you want, and you'll probably learn something, too, by the time you're done. Leslie, enjoyed this, and good luck. Have fun, and eat about 6.2 pounds of crawfish for me. <laughs> Thanks. I sure will. Leslie Lee with the Jimmy Rogers Music Festival kicking off this weekend and running all the way through the end of next weekend. It's a big deal over Meridian. Go over and enjoy yourself, because I can guarantee you, you will. We will continue here on Middays, live in the Element Wealth Studios, next. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. What? What? This is so awesome. On Super Talk Mississippi. Well, the verdict is in. The Proud Boys are guilty of seditious conspiracy. If you're saying, what in the heck is that? That dates all the way back to the Civil War, uh, that type of charge. And uh, they're looking at, I think it's like 20 years for that. And you also have to remember it didn't help their case. That This was uh, the, I think it was four that were left that were on trial, four or five. The rest of them had already pleaded uh, guilty to it. So, and as a result, part of their plea deal, they testified against the ones that fought it out to the end. <sighs> well, on the bright side, we got something to scream about, right? That's that's all we're looking for in life right now, something to scream about. Closest thing to a national hobby we have. I mean, it could always be worse. We could be like what's happening in England now. <laughs> I'm not even talking about the coronation. I'm talking. We were talking about crime earlier, and I have now seen four different videos of four different instances of sword fighting. Yes, yes, because when you uh, put in tough gun restrictions, crime goes right down. No, you hear cries of "Have at thee, sir." As someone comes galloping up behind you. And it is wild. 
Yeah, especially since chances are good, at best, one of the people involved might have some training in sword fighting. The rest of them, yeah, just hack and slash. Why not? (sighs) Why not sword fighting? Let's just bring it back. Come on. Get in there and mix it up. Let's make it personal. It's either that or thumb wrestling, and I think the sword fighting will be a lot more entertaining for the rest of us. So let's go with that. Oh, that's a good one. (laughs) Yes, uh, Mike from Grand Bay, ban those darn swords. That's next. Then you have to ban bricks. I'm I'm fairly certain swords are already banned in big swaths of England, like all of London. Yeah, I think they have a rule. uh, You can't have a bladed weapon with a blade over, like, two inches or three inches, but I've also seen things where people were walking through London and they got arrested because they were carrying home a kitchen steak knife they had borrowed from somebody else's house. So yeah, they're serious about it. Except when the sword fighting breaks out, apparently. On guard! Well, they have their own problems over there currently. I, uh, the, the poll that I saw this week, 2% of the people in England want Camilla to be called queen and not queen consort. 2%! Fits right in with everything else, though, because if there is one constant in our world today, it's the fact that the people in charge don't care what you think. They don't care what you want. They have no concept of, you know, paying any amount of attention to what's important to the people they're representing and, well, in that case, ruling over. I guess that's kind of, you know, right in line with the whole king thing. Let them eat cake. That's kind of, yeah, I don't care about them. I'm going to do what I want. Still going to have big ears, Chuck. No, the the suggestion was coronation quiche. It's not even cake anymore. And I'm trying to remember what all was in it. I know tarragon was one of the the ingredients. (laughs) Uh, This is the most ludicrous thing ever. And I get it's a big deal. I get everybody gets all pumped up about it. There's a certain... You know, percentage of the population all over the world is going to be hanging on every second of this. I'm not even going to roll over in my sleep. Okay, so it's even worse than I remembered. It's a deep quiche, but the coronation quiche is a pastry case with delicate spinach, broad beans, and tarragon. I can't even imagine what that tastes like. Um, Probably not all that great. British food's not known for being all that great. No. Now, you know it's mostly boiled. Which is all kinds of ironic. I mean, they conquered the world. They took over spice-rich India, and they don't even spice anything in their food unless it's Indian-inspired, like curry. Well, they took over the spices and said, what do you do with this? I have have no idea, I guess. I don't know. You get over here. We had Douglas in the building an hour ago. We could have gotten an expert opinion on this, but... (laughs) I also remember when he first got over here and the first time he tried fried catfish and realized, oh, wait, I'm never going back. It'll it'll have that effect on you. <sighs> so, yeah, got that going on. Now, the, the uh, latest thing, I don't know if you heard, we have now another bank that has, well, I started to say floated to the top, but it's more sank to the bottom of the discussion, PacWest, but there is a difference on this one. Uh, the the last one, the one that failed last week, First Republic Bank, uh, they had had a pretty serious problem. They had had a lot of people yank deposits out of the bank, over $100 billion worth since the first of the year. They were upside down, basically. 
PacWest, they're just kind of the next one up, but they don't have that same problem. They have more cash on hand than it would take to cover deposit the uninsured depositors and everybody else doing business with the bank. So if they had a huge run on the bank, a complete run on the bank right now, they'd pay everybody out. The bank would then fold, but that's kind of the end result of a bank run to begin with. So it is a different situation. That didn't stop their stock from dropping 60% yesterday. Ouch. In one day. It's like a drawing, a cartoon drawing of a cliff. You expect to see Wally Coyote holding a sign right up at the top of it when you look at the graph. Uh, because now, see, the problem is we've gotten this stirred up. And now people are scared. And when you're scared, sometimes, especially if it's you know benefiting you in some way for you and everybody else to be scared, once the reason to be scared goes away, you start looking for another reason to continue to be scared about the same thing. Are there problems? Yeah, there's problems all through the industry, all industries right now. But the PacWest Bank is a completely different situation from First Republic. You're not going to hear a lot of talk about that. It's going, another bank is about to fail. That's the headline you're going to see. So just keep that in mind as you heard that. I think the bigger thing is the whole debt ceiling deal. Did you know, and there has been an inaccuracy in reporting, I have even said this incorrectly, did you know we have defaulted on our debts one time in American history? We have. Only once? Once. One Was time. it the uh, crisis, was it after the Civil War with the introduction of the greenback? Yeah, that was a slightly different situation because you had a change in currency and there were a lot of, you know, outside factors and confusion that led into it. Uh, with our current system, one time in 1979, we were playing stupid games, getting getting right up to it, and a series of comical events, a funny thing happened on the way to the Treasury, Uh Word processing equipment broke down and failed. Now, word processing equipment was incredibly new in 1979. So, yeah. I remember what WordPerfect worked like. Yeah, there were problems. So, the word processing equipment that they used to process the payments failed, and it resulted in a temporary delay in payments to people redeeming treasury bills in 1979. Was it Word Perfect that had the live DJ on there waiting? Like if you called in yes. and you got put on hold, they had a live DJ? Yes. Yes. That would like read out, okay, so and so, so and so, you're up next in the line. They'll be with you shortly. And now, the next song. And now, here's the Bee Gees. Yeah. But 1979. What a strange world. <laughs> we defaulted. It was very temporary. It was just a couple of days. And I'm, I'm telling you this story. To illustrate something and to give you an example, the one example we can refer back to, what happens if by June 1st we haven't resolved this and we go past the limit and we start defaulting on our debt? This was a software breakdown. It was approved. Software breakdown. It wasn't that we didn't have the room in the, in the budget, in the debt, to pay the bills. The money was there. It was approved. It was all ready to go. It was a breakdown in the procedure, and the payments didn't actually go out for a couple of days. That, that made the cost of borrowing money in the United States go up six-tenths of a percent. Like that. 
Uh, a decade later, a paper was published and said that it never went back down after that. So as you look at the Fed continuing to hike interest rates and the effect it's having on borrowing, on lending, plus the banking crisis coming into that, uh, borrowing money is about to get expensive, and if we default on the debt, it's going to get very expensive. And we have only one instance, which was a tech error that caused it to happen, and it still went up over half a percentage point in terms of how much it costs to borrow money from that. So if it's intentional, we're playing a really stupid game right now, is what I'm saying. Very stupid game. And we're going to have to sort this out. Don't, don't get me started. I'll go down the path of, you know, why wouldn't we cut back on the budget? As the Republicans put in their House plan, makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? <laughs> Only on Earth. There's other planets involved, apparently. We'll continue on Super Talk Mississippi next. Attention, adoring fans! It's time for Middays with Gerard Gibbert on Super Talk Mississippi. With this bumping us in, I thought I took a nap and it was the start of October and it was cruising the coast time. Welcome back, middays in the Element Wealth Studios here on Super Talk. Dave Hughes here. Uh, fun little uh, different things going on. One, not so fun, but totally expected at the same time. I don't know if you heard the latest development, I guess you would call it. In the drone attack on the Kremlin, and please picture the air quotes around the word attack if you've seen the video. You know what I'm talking about. Uh, well, now uh, Russia has come out and said uh, that it was America. Said that the drones came from Ukraine, but America told them to do it. Desperately looking for any reason whatsoever is all that is. And I do have to give credit. Uh, John Kirby, spokesman for the White House National Security Council, uh, after this was said by, who was it, Dmitry Peskov, the spokesman for the Kremlin, is the one that said, decisions on such attacks are not made in Kiev, but in Washington. Uh, Kiev only does what it's told to do. Well, John Kirby, and good for him. I, it is nice to see this level of frankness in this situation. He said, quote, Peskov is just lying there, pure and simple. No fancy diplomatic language. He just called him a liar. You're lying. We had nothing to do with this. You made this up. You're lying. Very good. We, we need a little more of that frankness, I think, right now. Yeah, he could have given this big, long, flowery speech about, well, diplomatic efforts are underway to ensure our compatriots over in Moscow and at the Kremlin that we had no part of this ill intention. No, he just said, you're lying. 
You lying, liar-faced liar, you're lying. And there's a little bit more evidence that it could have been planned by Russia. Yeah. Because if you look at the video of the drone looking like it hits the flagpole on top of the dome, if you look really closely, there are people already out on the dome as if they were ready to put out any fires that might have started to prevent too much damage just enough well you don't want to mess up your own building when you're attacking your own building to say people attack your building you got to have some common sense here right <laughs> and, and i would like to also say another piece of evidence that this was a setup those high quality i don't know if you've seen the video that's a very nice video it's a 4k video uh from the security cameras at the kremlin which is controlled by the kremlin the only way that gets released is if the kremlin puts it out it doesn't go through any other hands. That wasn't a, as if there is such a thing as an objective news source in Russia, but it doesn't go through anything like that. The Kremlin, for all we know, in today's world of artificial intelligence, the whole thing could be made up. Because that does lead us into another area. When we're talking about all these things and we're, we're talking about, you know, calling people liars which in this case I think was totally justified. Again, John Kirby, full round of applause, exactly the appropriate response, I think, in this situation. But we default to that. If somebody says something we don't agree with or we don't want to believe, obviously they made it up and they're lying. How do you know? I don't know. I just know. I'm I'm a genius. I just know these things. To dispute something somebody brings up, you've got to prove it wrong, and saying that's wrong doesn't prove anything. But we have fallen into that trap. If you say a statistic that's put out is wrong, it's made up, okay, what proof do you have? What you got? Just saying it? Just repeating what you heard somebody else say? It's not proof. It's not evidence. There are – this applies across the board. Everybody is doing this right now. A lot of these lawsuits against former President Trump, a lot of them boil down to he said, she said in one form or another. Where's the proof? Well, the same standard applies across the board. If you're going to say something is wrong or someone did something wrong, prove it. If not, you're not helping. You're part of the problem. It's my opinion on that. But we see that everywhere. In this particular case, again, from a totally objective standpoint, we literally only have the Kremlin's word that this even happened. You, have you driven by the Kremlin? Have you, have you seen the scorch marks on the dome? Now, there were some secondhand reports from citizens in Moscow who said they Heard a, a couple of booms, saw some smoke. That's as far as it gets. The video, the information, the accusations, all of it coming out of the Kremlin, and all of it benefits what the Kremlin wants to accomplish and what Putin and his administration want to see happen. And it enables them to go on the offensive in a conflict that's not going very well. So there is, like, like the old thing about uh, crime, uh, what what do you need? What three things do you need to prove a crime? To prove that somebody did, uh, could have done something? 
method, motive, and opportunity. Opportunity is locked down here. Method? I think of about five different ways it could be faked. Motive? Oh, that's covered in spades. So, yeah, it kind of points towards they did this. Wouldn't be the first time. That's why I'm so proud of John Kirby for just coming right out and saying, you're lying. Let's not get diplomatic. You're just a liar. Very good. We need more of that. Sometimes a duck is a duck. Even if it's barking like a dog, it's still a duck. I would say there is still an element of danger from the standpoint of Russia seems to be looking for any excuse to rattle the, hey, we got nukes, saber. And it doesn't seem to be having the effect they want it to have. Yeah. That's because the rules have changed, but that's not newsworthy. The rules are continuously changing. It has been that way for millennia. (laughs) Everything evolves. Everything changes. But when you're stuck in a certain mindset and you expect, you know, if you push this button, that light's going to come on, and then you push that button and the light doesn't come on, you, you probably don't have a lot of thought put into plan B. So you just, and have you ever done this when the batteries go out in your remote and you hit the button and nothing happens on the TV? So what do you do? What's the first thing you do? Push it harder. Jam that button a little harder until your knuckle turns white, because obviously it's just not making a good connection, because I know this works. Then, when that doesn't work, what do you do? You take the remote, bump it on your hand a few times, like that's going to help solid-state electronics, and then you start mashing it harder again, and then eventually you identify the problem and fix it. But it's a process that everybody goes through. This is the diplomatic version of the batteries going out in your remote. They keep pushing the button, and it's not doing what they think it should be doing, and they don't know what to do about it yet. That's where we're at. If you look at it through the right filter, this is going to get even more entertaining the further we go. It is. But just remember, it's uh, it's your fault. <laughs> Sam, uh, yeah, this would be a false flag operation if if that's what happened, if the Kremlin just slapped it all together, just to have an excuse to rattle their sabers, as Rhino said, that would be a false flag operation. And it does kind of kind of lean that way. I would say, at least, I think the reason they're we have nukes saber rattling isn't working is because the rest of the world has seen that saber's pretty rusty at this point because they were planning to have a test launch of an intercontinental ballistic missile and it never left the ground yep so that news didn't really get put out by the kremlin they're currently sending world war ii era tanks into ukraine because that's what they're down to so i'm not really sure the sabers are that scary no matter how loudly they rattled them right now uh chris from oxford the only reason we've done that dave is because it's worked before as far as the remote goes talking about my analogy there uh but yeah the saber rattling has worked before Many, many times. Do you remember the Cuban Missile Crisis? Oh, this stuff has worked and worked and worked. And now the battery's dead. And, well, we're 
pushing the button with a white knuckle harder and harder because, well, this has always worked. Why isn't it working now? Change the the battery. Then you might get a different result. Just saying. That's my official divergence into international diplomacy and crisis management. You're welcome. They don't want me on that stage. (laughs) You think we have conflict. Turn me loose. John Kirby, who told the Kremlin today that their lying-faced liars would look at me and go, dude, dial it back a notch. We'll continue on Middays in the Element Wealth Studios next. Come on. Come on. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. All right, we are back on Super Talk Mississippi. Jimmy Craig is done. They announced last week to their employees that there may be layoffs in the future. And then one week later, they sent out an email on Tuesday night telling all of the non-corporate headquarter employees that their last day, well, they had just gotten home from it. They were done. The rest of them, everybody else, through tomorrow, and then it's done. They're closing everything down, shutting it down. Said that weight loss drugs and apps had really impacted their business and they couldn't continue. And that is a fallacy that I think a lot of people have. Uh, just because you have succeeded at something does not give you the God-given right to continue to succeed at it. Things change. That's the way it works. Hate that for the employees. That's awful. We got enough shutdowns and closures going on. But we have to get back to a more reasoned discourse to be able to solve some of these problems because for the most part it's still everybody, you know, uh, being uh, emotional, I guess you would say, about things that are going to take logic to solve. It's like what we were talking about uh, last hour with uh, Raphael. Uh, You know, you have to put some critical thinking, some nuance into things. Uh, Great example of putting nuance into your opinion when you're weighing in on a political topic. Rhino found this. It was someone addressing a board of supervisors. In San Francisco. In San Francisco uh, to share their thoughts uh, on how we can improve things and how we can get better moving forward in a nice, reasoned way. And I think we can learn a lot from this. Rhino has the audio. This was their, their reasoned take on how things were going with the Board of Supervisors. And I'll be nice. Headphone warning. <laughs> So see, if we can just bring back the reasoned discourse, I think it will it will help move things forward. And she's obviously leading the way there. Now, what's interesting is that's in San Francisco. Does she hate what San Francisco has turned into? Or does she want it to go more in that direction? You literally don't know by listening to that. You just know 
that uh, there's an issue there. Because that whole thing, that was her standing at the mic where people are allowed to come up, and usually it's like a three-minute limit for people to come up and address during the public comment section of, of municipal and county meetings around the country to address the Board of Supervisors. That was her comment. When the semantic content of your comment is zero, that's also what you're accomplishing. Where it gets tricky is when you think you've got semantic content and you don't. We see a lot of that. Because take that little clip, uh, don't take it completely literally, take it from more of a, a, a spiritual angle. If your idea of contributing to the discourse is the spiritual equivalent of that, you ain't helping. I mean, like I said, I don't know because you look at where San Francisco is at and everything's shutting down. Businesses are pulling out. They have crime through the roof. There are major problems all over the city. Is she against all that and wants things to go back to a more conservative-minded method of dealing with it? Or does she want it to get more that way? You literally couldn't tell from that. You might agree with every single thing she thinks. You don't know. There's no way to tell. Can you imagine getting stuck behind a school bus and that one's behind you in a hurry? No. So, yeah, just uh, uh, keep that in mind. Remember the screamy McScream's a lot there. Next time you're getting your ire aroused, dial it down a notch. That's all I'm saying. Uh, This is a great example. I don't know if you heard about this. Uh, (laughs) Over over, uh, in Trenton, New Jersey, it was a flight from Trenton to Atlanta on Monday. Had some people that were showing out, a couple of passengers and a flight attendant. They all got into it. Screaming, cursing. Well, flight attendants kicked the two passengers off the plane. Like, that's it. You're done. You're out. Get out. At which point, one of the passengers said, pointed to a third person and said, Hey, they were causing trouble, too. Who would like to see them off this flight, too? And everybody raised their hands, so the flight attendants went and got them. They voted them off the plane. No immunity idol. No screaming, no shouting, Jeff Probst unavailable for comment. They voted them off the plane. And guess what? They had a lovely flight. Problem solved. I like that. That's initiative. That's what that is. It's very good. When we come back after Fox News and Super Talk Mississippi News, uh, we will be joined by Dr. Christina Williams with Pine Grove. It is Mental Health Awareness Month, and we got a lot that we can dig into there, and we're going to do that to start off the next hour on Middays, live in the Element Wealth Studios. And now, the talk that keeps Mississippi talking. That's what I like to listen to. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Here on Super Talk Mississippi.
Welcome back. Super Talk Mississippi Middays, live in the Element Wealth Studios. Dave Hughes here, and joining us now, both on the air and on Super Talk TV, we have Dr. Christina Williams, uh, the Clinical Director of Pine Grove Outpatient Services, licensed psychologist, and overall a wonderful person. I'm just, I now, now the pressure's on, Doc. You've got to live up to that introduction. <laughs> How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks so much for having me. Most definitely. And uh, I'm going to be honest, I could do the entire hour with you, so just buckle up here. Oh. Uh, men- mental health That's is great. a big thing that doesn't get enough attention. May is Mental Health Awareness Month, and boy, do we need it and do we need to focus on it because I don't think it gets the attention it deserves. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. Um, I mean, we, we have a month uh, for a reason. And, and, you know, this actually started back in like 1949. And so for decades, we've been trying to bring more attention to this. Um, and so, um, you know, I definitely think that that shows like this, you know, um, definitely help um, the willingness to talk about it, to reduce the stigma. It's, it's so important. Well, what you just said there, that word stigma is at least 50% of the problem, I think, because we have, and we were talking about this earlier related to other subjects, we have somewhat devolved, I think, in a way in recent years. We no longer want to talk about the tough subjects, the things that you can't boil down to a simple slogan or a soundbite and make your entire argument about that one little piece of it. It's a complicated thing, and Part of that complication is so many people don't want to talk about it because they think they're going to be looked down on if they talk about it. And that's that we've got to get rid of that, I think, first. Absolutely. Um, and I think you, you hit the nail on the head. It's, you know, mental health is a really complex issue. Um, and I think sometimes, you know, when people are trying to figure that out on their own because they can't say, OK, you know, it's this. And I know what to do for that. You know, I have a cut, I put a Band-Aid on it. Um, if I have a heart issue, I go to a cardiologist. Um, it, it's not, doesn't feel quite as simple of a fix. Um, and, and, you know, I do think, too, there's, to, there's a lot of um, kind of a, a, a misbelief that we have a lot more control over it than perhaps we do. Um, and, you know, that stigma um, really only contributes to the fact that people have a fear of reaching out and and that's really the solution um it's talking about it normalizing it recognizing that um it's so prevalent and and you know we're not alone um in having mental health issues pretty i think one in five adults have some sort of mental health issue um i mean think about that you know there's probably five people in your office right now and so well this is radio it's way more we 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 beat that average i have no doubt (laughs) (laughs) Um, And so, you know, it's this is a very common problem, but it's not as commonly talked about. And um, that can feel really isolating and, and cause, I guess, a contribute to that fear of reaching out. Well, and I, I think you said something very important there that we need to pull out is that so many people, and a lot of this comes from uh, how you were raised, how you were brought up, what you were taught in your formative years, uh, everything from stop crying or I'll give you something to cry about uh, on up. And, and yeah. that, that area of, of mindset, uh, there are things that are out of your control. There are things, And if you don't believe that, I've got a simple 
example to give you. Next time you're about to sneeze, choose not to. Let me know how that works out for you. Just just shut it down. There's a very obvious example of sometimes your body does things whether you want it to do it or not. And that's magnified a hundred times in the world of mental health. Your brain is going to do things you didn't tell it to do, you didn't want it to do, but here we are, so we have to deal with the facts as they are. Absolutely. Uh, and, and you you know, you, you talk about, like, general, generationally, right, the, the coping strategies that are handed down. Well, if we didn't really talk about it or maybe we talked about it as, like, you know, I had a spell, it's fine, I don't need to, t- you know, we don't really need to dig into it. Um, then there really, there's not a a place for you to kind of learn, well, what is this actually called? And is it okay to have these feelings? And genetics, we we don't have a lot of control over. And so if, you know, grandparents, parents, if it's, if it's seen throughout the ages, um, but labeled incorrectly and nobody really talked about it or got any help, you don't have a whole lot of control that, you know, that's likely to be expressed for you as well. Um, and then, of course, there's, you know, the outside of genetics, what we learn. Um, and so if that's uh, to have feelings, to express what's going on um, is weak. I hear that word a lot. I was about um, to use that word. Yes, that I, I don't want to feel weak. And, and, you know, for me not to be able to just suck it up and move along is weak. Um, and, and I'm going to tell you the, I've done this work for quite a while, the strongest and bravest people I've had the honor of being in their presence are in these rooms at Pine Grove with, in treatment. Those are the strongest and bravest I've seen. Um, because it is, it, it takes, um, a lot of strength to be able to be maybe the first one in your family to face a stranger and say, Hey, I, I need to talk through some things, and I need some solutions. Well, and the other part of this, and this is why therapy and access to mental health services, and we're going to get to that in a second, is so huge, is because, and let me let me give you a, another example, another analogy. I think everyone has been in this situation or something similar. You've got a friend, you've got a, a sibling, whatever, and they've got a relationship and maybe it's not going too well, or they've got another friend that you can see it, it's plain as day, this isn't working, this isn't going to work, it's bad for them. They can't see it because they're too close. You cannot be closer to something than you are to your own brain. Other people with the right training and the right skills are going to be able to see things and say one sentence, and then you'll sit there and stare at the wall for 30 minutes going, wow, it really does work that way, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, and I think, um, you know, when you're when you're in it, um, it, it's, it is. It's definitely hard to see. And, you know, something that's a little tricky is, um, sometimes the people we seek um, or the relationships that we're looking for in those moments are not necessarily they see they feel like they work um, in terms of like maybe I'm struggling with something and I find a person who seems to help me with that but maybe the coping strategies they're bringing in aren't so healthy so this feels like a great option right and to me i'm starting to maybe feel better but i'm feeling better through substance use because that was introduced to me so i mean and 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 so someone from the outside can say well wait a second the long-term picture here 
you know, is, is not great for you and I care about you and this isn't going to end well or this is not so great. But the person in that moment feels like it's working or it's it's fulfilling a need. Um, maybe it's it's blocking them from having to look at themselves. Right. Because um, that's hard. And so, yes, it definitely takes um, an objective person, especially with training, to say, wait a second, there's a pattern here or I get why you're doing this and validating, like I get why this might feel better in the moment, but let's zoom out a little and see how this is actually gonna impact you in the long run. Or this doesn't seem to be in line with your values. Um, Let's talk about that. Let's see if we can get you more in line with where you'd rather be heading. Sometimes you grab onto the first life raft that floats by and you don't care that it's covered with fire ants. At least you're keeping your head above water. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Um, it's a temporary fix that, that really may not be great um, in the long run. Um, and, you know, the other thing that, that, you know, when we were talking about kind of in generationally, like if you don't have a whole lot of coping strategies, um, that ability to, to withstand kind of the immediate distress, what is it, a short-term pain for long-term gain, right? Like if I don't have the coping strategies to be able to make it through that short-term distress that it's going to take, to change behaviors, to make it to the long-term healthy patterns, then I'm just going to kind of stay stuck in this cycle of the short-term, well, this feels better in the moment. And you're right, that life raft, it's not great and it's not going to last very long and it's going to cause more distress and more pain. Well, and the problem in that particular scenario, yeah, it'll keep you afloat for a while, but sooner or later you have to let go and now you're back to drowning, plus you have fire ant bites, so it gets even harder to make your way through it at that point. We are talking with Dr. Christina Williams with Pine Grove. It's Mental Health Awareness Month, and we will continue when we come back. I want to talk about access to mental health services and how big of a difference that can make in everybody's life, whether they use them or not, as long as they're available to the people that need them the most. We'll we'll get into that when we come back here on Middays in the Element Well Studios. Keep it here. stories that matter most to Mississippians. Gerard Gibbert, Middays with Gerard, Super Talk Mississippi. Welcome back, Super Talk Mississippi Live in the Element Wealth Studios on Middays. Dave Hughes here and we have uh, Dr. Christina Williams with us with Pine Grove, the clinical director of outpatient services there. And right before the break, I mentioned to you, and I want to talk about this, the access to mental health. And I'm sorry, it ain't that great in uh, in the state of Mississippi. I mean, uh, Pine Grove is kind of the shining exception to that because it's phenomenal levels of care that you give. But Uh, It's not an option for everybody. If for no other reason, then you've only got so much space in the building. We need more access to services. Am I right on this? Yes, unfortunately. Um, I mean, when you look at um, some of the statistics, right, like nationwide, 
some of the worst prevalence of mental health issues are the states that have the least amount of access for people to get help. Um, I mean, that makes intuitive sense, right? Um, and so, unfortunately, I mean, I think Mississippi is kind of right there in the middle. We're like, uh, I think we're ranked like 21 um, in terms of uh, access to care. Um, and, you know, we, we've got a lot of rural areas. Um, and so sometimes for people to access care, they've got quite a drive that they've got to make. Um, and, and it is unfortunate. Um, I will say, um, interestingly, you know, COVID, um, while it, we actually saw quite an increase in mental health um, disorders, um, e- even our patients who were receiving treatment, you know, we did see some of the severity increase. Um, but interestingly enough, COVID actually brought about a bit of an increase in access to care. Um, which you wouldn't think that, right? Like people are not able to leave their houses. They're, they're creating these little bubbles. They're, they're isolating more due to fear of COVID. But, um, what we actually saw was a dramatic increase in telehealth. And so, um, you know, these people who recently, you know, had to drive two hours to see us, um, the laws changed quite a bit, um, in terms of what providers were able to do. Um, in telemedicine and we were able to see more and more people through telehealth and they're able to do it from the comfort of their homes and um, a lot more people who never had access before were able to get that access. So it, it was, I mean, I hate to say that there's any pros to COVID, right? Um, but it definitely was something that increased access. And check me on this one too because I, I have no data to back this up whatsoever, but I have a theory uh, that it wasn't Eliminating the drive and eliminating the time that saw an increase in access to the health. It was an elimination of stigma. You didn't have to explain where you've been all day. You didn't have to tell anybody. You didn't have to get anybody to drive and bring them into this and admit to them that you had a problem. You can go in the backyard and get on the phone and take care of it. And nobody else has to know. So I think avoiding having to deal with the stigma it kind of greased the chute to get people to seek out help, I think. I mean, you're exactly right. That's definitely a component. That's something we heard, um, too. I mean, we had um, people who suffer from um, something called agoraphobia. So they have a, a very significant fear of leaving their homes. And so, you know, for once, we were seeing them kind of reach out for help because they recognize, wait a second, you know, I don't necessarily have to face the things that I need treatment for in order to get the treatment that I need. Um, I don't have to leave my home just yet. Um, and so you're right. I mean, and that's for uh, of multiple uh, disorders. You know, it's, it's I have to call and I have to talk to somebody and tell them what I need. And then I got to show up in a clinic and um, I've got to take off work. And so it, it absolutely created an easier um, convenience too. Um, I can on my lunch break go down to the parking lot um, and have a session in my car and then go right back to work. And that's important because it needs, in my opinion, it needs to be as absolutely easy as we could possibly make it to reach out to somebody for help. Everybody has had a day where they wish they had somebody they could talk to. And what most people don't realize is that's what mental health services, that's what therapy is. It's somebody to talk your problems over with and give you an outside perspective from a learned uh, state of mind and a learned perspective uh, to where they can offer you authentic advice and advice and see things that you're not seeing and kind of open your eyes. 
That's the whole point. But, but we have uh, an entire segment of the population that thinks that, and, and I'm just going to say what they say, uh, only a sissy would go to go do that. Now, you've probably heard that before, haven't you, Doc? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, you know, and I've, I've had, uh, you know, don't, don't tell, don't, hopefully you won't tell anybody I'm in here um, because people are going to say I'm weak. People are going to say, um, and, and it's, it's a lot of the, the language of their family message, their friends. It's all of the things that people are saying about people who, um, you know, seek mental health care. And it's, it's so unfortunate. I mean, they're going to talk to someone, whether it's their wife or their husband or their friends. Usually there's some kind of conversation that's had. And wouldn't you rather the advice or the insight that comes back be from a, a perspective of where there's some training and, um, you know, insight into that. And, and also it's, completely confidential so you know your friend that you've told this to you know they're not bound by by HIPAA we are um, and so you know that's something that's something that you know I, I remind people of as we get started is like I, I can't even tell people I know who you are if I see you on the street I'm not going to wave at you um, like it's it is completely confidential and and so like this story that you're either having to deal with on your own or you're telling friends and maybe not getting as helpful of advice. I mean, don't get me wrong. Friends can have helpful advice, but um, if things aren't changing, then, you know, why not go for this kind of very safe, confidential setting where um, you can get some some tools and some strategies? Well, and the other thing is it sometimes doesn't work out the way you have it built up in your head that it's going to work out because sometimes all you need is an objective perspective from someone to tell you, no, you're, you're not crazy. You're, you've got a point. I don't care what they're telling you. I don't care what they're trying to make you believe. You're not wrong. You're okay. Sometimes you just need that emotional backup. And, and that's another service that's provided through this. Right. And I mean, I think one huge piece of, of the treatment that we do is normalizing. Um, and I think people will very slowly kind of eke out information like, hey, I'm feeling this way and then I had this thought. I mean, where do I need to go? What's happening? I mean, they, they, they think it's going to be the first time that anyone in the history of the world has said this thing out loud, right? And so, um, you know, having somebody that goes, oh, I hear this every day wow, you're not alone. That must really be hard. And you've dealt with this by yourself for how long? Um, you know, it, it's that relief that you have that um, I'm not broken. I'm not the only one. This is not something that's unfixable. There's other people. Um, I mean, we, we have uh, group therapy um, that we offer here. And the, the, amount of just support and recognition that the person to the left and the person to the right um, have these same thoughts and feelings that I've never told anyone um, is it's a tremendous experience and it can feel really empowering to want to um, you know okay well if I'm not the only one and I've practiced these tools and these skills then I'm going to talk about it more because it, it needs to be something that people are saying to each other. 
Well, we could actually drift off into the whole concept of tribalism, how it's built into the human psyche to begin with, and lead you right down that path. But, you know, we're off the air in 30 minutes, and I want to take up your entire day, Doc. Uh, but I do want to go back to something you said just a second ago. Barroom therapy is not nearly the solution you think it is, because when people are in a bar, they think they can dance, they think they can sing, and they think they have all the answers, and they're wrong about all three of them. That's why you have to seek out a professional in this case. If someone... and I'm not talking about someone who's at the end of their rope, although it definitely includes them. But you just you just seem to be having one of those days every day. N- nothing that rises to a ridiculous level. Something that you have convinced yourself, I I just need to suck it up. This is ridiculous. I like it. You can still reach out for help. How do they do that? Um, this is such a good point. I mean, it's it's you know people feel like. Well, I'm not to that level where, and they have some picture in their mind of what broken enough or bad enough need, like what level they need to reach to actually ask for help. Um, and you know, I I implore people not to wait to that point uh, because then you know, I mean, we definitely will lean in, we'll definitely provide treatment. But if if the thing started unraveling two years ago, can you imagine if you reached out then? Um, how, you know, what, what we could have avoided, the trauma that we could have not added. Um, and so, you know, I, I agree. If people think that they've got to kind of like suck it up until it really is so bad that I can't take it anymore. And that's not the case. Um, I mean, you know, honestly, if your every day uh, doesn't feel like it's in line with what you would like it to be, what your life what you'd like that to look like, what your values are, what your relationships are like. If you're just going through the motions, why is that not bad enough to want it to change? You know, um, and I think that's 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 a concept that a lot of people really don't understand. That well, it, and I get think help really early on. we're up against a break. Uh, if you can hang on, I'll talk to you for a few more minutes. I know you've got nothing to do with your time other than talk to me, but uh, <laughs> can you hang on? Absolutely. Fantastic. Uh, and yeah, it, the, what's what's the risk factor here? You have a conversation. Ooh, right. Well, we'll bring it on. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. It is on on Super Talk Mississippi. Super Talk Mississippi Middays, live in the Element Wealth Studios. Dave Hughes, Dr. Christina Williams with Pine Grove Outpatient Services, uh, who did not realize she was signing up for this long of a stint. But I'm sure she complained about it during the break. I didn't hear it, so it's fine. We can just move forward. Uh, We're we're talking about this, and this is a topic I'm passionate about uh, because I think the only way to do away with the stigma is to be passionate about it and to talk about it and to get the conversation going. And I was telling Rhino during the break when we were talking, uh, the whole goal of this, this whole, what, 30, 40 minutes and counting, sorry, uh, is that if one person hears this and goes, wait, okay, so we, we can, wait, we can actually talk about this? Really? Wait, wait, hold on. That's it. That's the goal. That's the whole thing because that's what starts the entire ball rolling on this. I I would say probably that's the hardest part is that very first admission that, hey, might do me some good to talk to somebody. I I think that's the biggest hill to climb, isn't it? 
Absolutely. And, and I, I feel like um, that, that idea that you brought up about like it has to be so bad, right? Um, and, and I feel like, um, hopefully I agree if one person hears this and they they think to themselves, you know, first of all, that psychologist didn't look too scary, hopefully, and seems like a nice person and like we can talk, um, and it can be just like a, a, a typical conversation, but except that maybe with some helpful strategies that, um, you know, that, that we've built some comfort towards the idea of just asking for help. Then, then we've done, I've done my, my job for the day, right? Like if any, if this helps anybody know that, um, it's okay to ask for help. It's okay to have these difficulties. Lots and lots of people have them. And, um, that, that first step might be, you know, kind of difficult, but it's an important one. Um, and, um, you know, I think recognizing um, that you're not alone is a big deal. Well, and the other part of that, the other side of the coin of stigma here is, uh, you know, when you said just then, that psychologist doesn't look scary, and you look like a totally lovely, wonderful human being. You really do. Uh, and it seems like you are. Uh, but we, we, we build things up in our mind. I was a psychologist. I was a doctor. Got to talk to a doctor. I'm going to tell a tale out of school on Dr. Williams. I'm going to see if I can get her to confirm this live. We didn't discuss this. You've burped before, haven't you? Oh, burped, sneezed, you know, um, you name it. Absolutely. Several other things we won't discuss. Look, she's a human <laughs> being just like you are. She just has training in a very specific area that can help people. And sometimes you, you kind of uh, – people will build it up as this – This you're almost like a mythical creature, Doc. You know, oh, it's a doctor of psychology. Oh, I, she's analyzing everything I say. Like you don't do that every day, every time the family gets together for Sunday dinner. That's just part of human nature. But – the, the therapists, the doctors, the people, they are people just like you are, which means they can relate to what you're going through because they have problems, too. And, and that's something exactly I think that gets right. lost in the conversation sometimes. It's exactly right. I mean, we're, we're not immune to having feelings. Um, and, you know, we're, we're not immune to feeling like at some point we needed to even get help out of our, outside of ourselves. I mean, the best therapists have done their own work. Um, and so it, it's, it's recognizing that this is something that even with my, my training, you know, I need that outside perspective sometimes as well. Um, and, and we're human and this is just beneficial, um, to get that support from somebody else. And, um, you know, it's, it's not, you know, I also think sometimes there's the fear of like, well, I, you know, I've kept these secrets for so long, um, or there might be some sort of like family betrayal, or there might be some sort of um, fear that like, I have to say that my parents necessarily didn't give me these things that I need, and I don't want to speak ill of them. And there is a lot of fear about like the things that I'm going to say out loud, um, what, what that's going to mean. Um, but, you know, once those things are out there and you see that we don't run out of the room screaming and we're not, like I said, we're HIPAA bound. So we're, we're not going to tell anybody anything. You can actually take a minute and go, Whew, OK, now that that's out there, that's great because I can I can get some help with that. I can get some strategies. It's not something that um, necessarily broke anything. 
Um, and I had all of these fears built up about what the, what was going to happen next if I actually spoke about these things out loud. Well, I am hereby declaring the official formation of the second law of emotional movement. Emotions and problems suppressed tend to stay suppressed. Emotions and problems that are in motion moving towards a solution tend to continue moving towards a solution. You just got to give them moving first. And that that's all you have to do. It's simple. It's easy. And again, as I said right before the commercial break, what's the biggest risk you're running here? The, the absolute worst that can happen is you have a nice conversation with a lovely person you never talked again talk to again. You did that in line at Walmart yesterday. That's not a big hill to climb. And nobody else will ever know you even had the conversation. So it, it really is not the problem everybody builds it up to be in their mind to look for a little help. I mean, exactly. Um, you know, I think that um, what's interesting is we're, we're also probably having, like, the conversation you had in line at Walmart you're having that conversation with yourself all day. Um, and those thoughts are, like you said, they're, they're not necessarily going anywhere. Those they're, they're being suppressed or we're just allowing them to continue to spin and not breaking that cycle. And with each cycle, maybe we're adding something even a little bit more negative in our self-talk. So we're just, it's just getting worse and worse. Um, and so like, you know, actually changing that that narrative that that you're telling yourself by including someone else's thoughts in that like hey i i've really um i've been struggling with xyz and i really feel like it means this about me um and i can't get that out of my head and i've not only been thinking that i'm behaving based on that belief and so maybe because i have this negative self-view I'm not engaging in things I'd really like to. I'm hiding from the people that I love um, because I think this thing is true about myself. And it's just this vicious cycle that without an outside perspective, that conversation you're having with yourself over and over is just going to get worse. Look at it like this. If, if you have, like, a, a big bump that appears on your shin, and it, it doesn't look good. I mean, it's got that red ring around it. It's turning dark in the middle. It's horrible. And somebody, you, you, you go to the doctor, and they come in, and they tell you exactly what they think is wrong. And they tell you, oh, well, it's this horrible, horrible, rare disease, and you're going to have to have six months of surgery, and you're going to have to do this, and you're going to have to change everything about your life to deal with this. What are you going to do? You're going to get a second opinion. Why wouldn't you want to? second opinion on what you've already decided about yourself it's exactly just as important right right um and an opinion too that's gonna be kind and caring you know a lot of times that voice is not so kind and caring um because we're really really hard on ourselves you know we feel like because we're having these human experiences that maybe aren't the ones that we're posting on Instagram or the ones that we're posting on Facebook, um, it's not the highlight reel, that it means something really bad about us. Um, and so that that self-talk, you know, we, it'd be really helpful if we could get some care and some kindness and some normalizing in there um, to help break that. And then if we can change the beliefs we have about ourselves, then our behaviors are based on that. And that's when things, re- it's really cool to see that people start engaging in the things that they care about because you were able to first address that really negative cycle that was keeping them from that. 
And I want to make one thing perfectly clear, too. Uh, I love Pine Grove. I love what you do. This is not a commercial for Pine Grove. I don't care who you go to in terms of a licensed professional. Just if you feel like you might need to, if you feel like it's a possibility that you should, do it. I I don't care where they're at. I don't care who they're at. And I'm pretty sure that Dr. Williams will agree with that. Absolutely. I mean, if it's, I mean, the other thing too that's, that's to think about is um, a lot of people, I'll even say, look, if you've seen your PCP for 10 years and that's the person, like your primary care provider or your pediatrician or the person that you've seen for 10 years for your medical issues that you've built some comfort level talking to them about, bring up the anxiety and depression that you're having. Bring up like, I'm noticing that I just don't care about the things I used to. Um, you know, we we uh, work very closely with a lot of our medical professionals. We give them screeners. They're asking these questions. Um, they have knowledge of, of, okay, well, you know what? I know a great person. Let me give you a referral. Just that simple, just that easy. I am going to let you actually get back to your life now, Dr. Williams. She she agreed to a 12-minute interview. An hour later, she's like, this guy won't <laughs> shut up. Uh, but I do appreciate no. you taking the time because I think it's important that, that people hear these things. And I really am appreciative of you taking the time to help get this message out and kind of destigmatize things just a little bit. Keep up the good work, okay? I appreciate your time as well. Thanks so much for doing this. Uh, Anytime, anytime. Glad to do it. It's Mental Health Awareness Month. Are you aware of your mental health? If not, you're not celebrating properly. You need to get to it. We'll continue final segment of Middays in the Element Wealth Studios next. Middays with Gerard. Good for America. Good for fans of justice and truth. Good for us. Super Talk Mississippi. This is what we stand for. You know, I got to tell you, as we enter the final segment of the show on this Thursday here on Middays, we talked earlier about the... Uh, Michael Jackson guy that was on the subway and got choked and wound up dying from it. The world has led us to a point to where I'm seeing headlines now that just make me go, wait, what? And I know the details of the story, but let me read you this headline for that story. And tell me that if you had a time machine and you went back 10 years, much less 20 or 30 or 50 or whatever, and told somebody this, that they wouldn't look at you like you were, you know, on the best quality mushrooms. Here it is. <clears throat> Outrage over chokehold death of Michael Jackson impersonator and clash with Marine on New York City subway. I mean, honestly, it sounds like a great video game. Yeah, that that sounds an awful lot like Weekend Update from Saturday Night Live. It really does. It sounds like satire. It sounds like a farce. I can almost hear it in Norm MacDonald's voice. (laughs) Yeah, but then he would immediately say it was O.J.'s fault. (laughs) That's what he would have done. You know that. That was his running gag. I think that finally got him fired. Oh, yeah. Because he just would not let that go. Everything was about O.J. before it was over with. 
it was a fair take, I think. Norm was a great example of somebody that just did not care. He was going to say what he wanted to say, and if you didn't like it, oh well. Good to be you, I guess. And then he'd go on about his business. Case in point was when he went on The View. Oh, that was that was <laughs> that was magisterial. It really was. It was awesome. You know, I know you've probably heard the buzz in a lot of places. I've got some friends that uh, I got. I got a friend in North Carolina. Their business is talking about going to a four day work week. Well, there's another aspect of this, in case you hadn't heard about it. Uh, there is a big push right now, and we have hundreds of uh, school districts that are doing this, going to a four-day school week. I know. The look Rhino is giving me is the look I made when I first saw this. Feels like that's kind of getting the cart before the horse. Yeah. Uh, school officials in Mineral Wells, Texas city of about 15,000. Uh, they have finally fallen in line with all of the school districts that neighbor them, that border them, and they are going to a four-day school week starting next year. This is, it's not like just one isolated school district. There are literally hundreds that either already have or plan this fall to go to a four-day school week. What's interesting is that would be one of the drivers, I think, to making the four-day work week happen. If you think about it, it solves a child care problem. Because if you go to a four-day school week and you're still working five days a week, well, you got a whole day. you got to figure out what to do with the kids. Unless you go to a four-day work week, in which case you sync them up, everybody's fine. So that might actually drive things more in that direction, and it's already got some momentum for the four-day work week. It's going to be interesting to see how this plays out, but this is an aspect I really haven't heard anyone talk about that answers one of the questions about the whole four-day work week concept. you got all sorts of school. The number of four-day school districts has increased by 600%. One thousand six hundred school districts across twenty four states are doing four day a week school year round, not for a holiday special week or something. That's the regular schedule. They go to school four days a week. That's it. One thousand six hundred districts across twenty four states. This is not a fringe topic. This is happening. This is coming up, and it's spreading. It's continuing to spread. This will come into the conversation at some point pretty quickly from the looks of things. But it does tie into the four-day work week concept. I think it could be argued it almost diminishes some of the value of the four-day work week for the parents. In a way, yeah. Because they they all of a sudden in one fell swoop lose that one day at the house where they can get things done while the kids are at school. Yeah. Yeah, that's very true. But at the same time, you've also got, you know, if you're doing five days, they're doing four days, well... All of a sudden, you're making less than you were because you're having to spend money on child care. Because sooner or later, Grandma's going to get tired. She's got to go get her weaves did. The question is, how do you set it up? Is it Saturday, Sunday, Monday is the weekend? 
Or that's, is it Friday, Saturday, Sunday is the weekend? That's what's interesting. It's pretty evenly split right now from what I was reading. Some of them are taking Monday as the extra weekend day. Some of them are taking Friday as the extra weekend day. And what in the heck do you do with your football schedule? There's a lot of moving parts to this. But again, 1,600 school districts across 24 states are already doing this. So it's not a question of what if, it's more what now for a big chunk of school districts that's building and growing at a rapid pace. Have yourself a wonderful time. Gerard is back up to hilarity and hijinks both tomorrow. You have a wonderful time, and I will see you again soon, my friend. Super Talk Mississippi Media Production.